0: Stephanie Murray's passion for covering government and politics has taken her from capturing the details at board meetings in small towns like Shutesbury, as an intern at the Daily Hampshire Gazette, onto the State House, then with Politico, where she moved from writing the Massachusetts playbook to today in DC as the author of Politico's morning score, solely focused on the campaigns in the midterm elections. We focus on her approach to coverage between the so-called horse race and the issues driving the themes in these races. One of the biggest issues on voters' minds is, well, inflation. Inflation which, right or wrong, is being blamed on the Democratic president with weak approval ratings, all impacting races for House and Senate seats. We cover a possible shakeup in the Democratic presidential nominating contest. Will Iowa and New Hampshire still be the first states? And we cover the interesting dynamics of statewide elections in Massachusetts in a year with an open seat for governor. It's a great chat. I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Stephanie Murray from Politico. And Stephanie Murray is now in Washington, D.C., and uh, she's moved up the ladder of Politico. So, Stephanie, it's great to see you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be on the podcast
0: and um when you first started you were in massachusetts and um you know we're working out of the state house i believe um originally maybe that was your first political job um and then moved over to politico and uh and so tell me about your journey a little bit in in this world
1: sure um so i have just been you know a politics obsessive my entire life um and I started covering politics um, as a reporter when I was in college. I went to UMass Amherst, and I would work at the local paper um, on the weekends, the Daily Hampshire Gazette in Northampton. So I would be there, you know, just saying like, "Send me to a town board meeting. Send me to like the zoning meeting in Shutesbury. Send me to uh, the city council in Northampton." And so I was doing that. Um, and then throughout college, I started working at the State House News Service, which is a newswire in the Massachusetts State House kind of like the Associated Press. And then from there, I started interning at Politico, and this was the summer of 2018. And so that was like the year that the family separations at the border were a huge deal. Uh, The Trump-Putin summit in Helsinki, which is, you know... uh, Interesting to think about now in light of everything that's going on with Russia and Ukraine. Um, so, I was covering breaking news for Politico at a really interesting time to be in Washington, and I would work the early morning breaking news shift. So, I would get up at like 4 30, 4 45, and I had to have like Trump tweet alerts on my phone um, to see, you know, what was going to come through uh, to monitor. And, you know, we didn't write about every single tweet, but uh, sometimes when people got fired or things like that, um, that would be my job in the Morning to write it up. I think one of them was like moving the embassy in Israel or something like that. There was always something going on. Um, so from there, I uh, moved on to Massachusetts Playbook, which was my newsletter that I wrote for about three years. So I was based in Boston um, pre-COVID. I worked out of the state house a lot, like you mentioned, and so I was just covering everything, politics and policy in Massachusetts. From- and, and
0: it is extraordinarily comprehensive. I mean, th- those <laughs> newsletters. Um, you know, I, to me, it's amazing the amount of content that was actually pumped out. So when you get those newsletters, and people who are in politics, obviously, you know, get it. Uh, the number of stories, and and of course, you know, to some extent, it may be a bit of um, you know a, a sort of catch all, and you're you're pulling stories from different places and putting it together. But that work alone must have been uh, a, a great a great amount of work.
1: Well, thank you for saying it was comprehensive. It was definitely like a labor of love. And I think like the newsletter was so full of Stuff um because of how engaged and active the political scene in Massachusetts was. And I was writing it at a really interesting time. You know, we had like three or four people from Massachusetts running for president uh on both sides of the ticket. Uh a massive Senate primary race between Joe Kennedy and Ed Markey, uh a speakership transition at the state house. You know, Bob DeLeo stepped down, Ron Mariano took over. That's something, you know, Bob DeLeo was the speaker for life. There was a transition that hadn't happened in a long time. So there were all of these enormous uh, political stories happening. And then obviously uh, the pandemic, which kind of overshadowed absolutely everything. So there was so much to cover. I was also going up to New Hampshire every week or every couple of weeks for the entire year and a half or so of the presidential primary cycle. Uh, So it was just, you know, a really fun time to be in Boston, especially because that's where I'm from. And so it was just nice to do that. And then about a year ago, I uh, took this new job at Politico writing Morning Score, which is our campaign's newsletter focusing on everything midterms. So I'm covering, you know, House races, Senate races, voting rights, redistricting, anything midterms related falls under my umbrella, which has been, uh, you know, really interesting year getting up to speed and what I think is going to shape up to be a historic election.
0: And it's interesting, I think maybe some of the balance as being a uh, political reporter is this uh, decision on how much time you spend on the horse race not to steal the uh the, the name of the podcast it used to be on but and and then of course the actual issues that people may or may not be um knowledgeable about as they as they vote so you know tell me about that and as far as you i mean because you're looking at every single political ad that comes out all over the country and and the rest. Um, No one has a better sense of the horse race. Um, But then also there are the uh, issues. And so I wonder if the issues are more being driven through the campaigns, or if it if it is an organic process, you know, tell me about that a little bit that sort of balance.
1: That's a really interesting question. And what I try to do with my newsletter is kind of look at um, different themes that are emerging. So obviously, you know, who's up, who's down, what the polls are looking like, you know, who's spending the most money, who's endorsing where, all of those things are really important to, you know, the campaign cycle and to the newsletter is something that people are looking at every day to see kind of what the biggest or I guess the most incremental but most important news that they need to know. Um when they're working on these kind of campaigns or being closely involved but what i'm trying to do like as i'm looking at all of these different data points is to zoom out and see what the big trends are and so as you mentioned so i um watch every single political ad that comes through we have this platform called ad impact that will just like email you every single political ad that hits television in the country. And so that's something I've been trying to, you know, watch every ad and see what the themes are that emerging that are emerging. I think inflation is one of those themes that has come out in the last couple of months. Um, And that bears out in the polling when you see voters kind of identifying the economy as something that's more important to them than the pandemic, which is, you know, those things were flipped before, but inflation has certainly eclipsed the pandemic when you look at polling in like different battleground states and nationally. And that's something that we could see kind of coming through in all of these different ads for months. And initially it was, Republicans hitting Democrats talking about inflation. Um, I think like five different candidates in Pennsylvania have gone to the actual gas station and cut ads like at the gas pump, like brought a film crew there to talk about it. Um, But now you're seeing Democrats talk about inflation too. And I think that it's a sign, you know, you can look at the poll and you can listen to what people are saying, but to see the Democrats are going on the air, spending millions of dollars to put these messages in front of people and what they're talking about is inflation. It's obvious that they feel like this is an issue that people are concerned about and they need an answer for. So a few different ads that I can point to are Mark Kelly, uh, one of the most vulnerable Democrats uh, up for re-election this fall in Arizona. His first ad talked about inflation. Same deal with Senator Raphael Warnock in Georgia, Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada. um, And the list goes on. The most vulnerable Democrats are talking about this. So that's like one theme that I've noticed. Um, And so you can look at the polling and look at the horse race and what issues are up and down. But I think where people are putting their money and effort to talk about kind of tells you where this election is going to go.
0: Yeah, it's the ultimate uh, pocketbook issue. And I've always been a believer that... When it comes down to it people uh in large part do vote their pocketbooks i mean you know um, when it comes to household uh decisions and i wonder uh you know you have democrats how how are they explaining that you know when it comes down to it if they're loyal to joe biden or trying to and joe biden has little stickers next to the (laughs) uh the pumps everywhere saying i did this uh, or i did that um that's a that's a tough thing to wiggle out of and try to figure out how do i message this thing uh, say that i'm for you for uh, reducing inflation but it's, it's tough having the guy be the guy with a a D next to his name as president. Um, It's, it's gotta be tough for them right now. And, you know, there are some who are predicting that uh, Republicans are going to take over uh, after this, uh, after this midterm.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I mean, it's any midterm year, it's difficult for the party that's in power. And so now that's Democrats. Um, And so I think that, Everyone in the party in the Democratic Party is worried about this and trying to figure out what they're going to do to kind of protect themselves. We're in Washington, in the House and Senate, some of the narrowest margins you can possibly have. It's a 50-50 Senate. Um, Anybody, you know, any Democratic seat that the Democrats lose, uh, they will lose control of the Senate. And the climate that we're in, I mean, and things could obviously change, um, you know, in a second, especially in the political environment that we're in. But when you look at polling in battleground states um, and national polling, you know, Republicans uh, have an edge on the generic ballot, something that Democrats typically have even in bad years. And so it's obvious that they're trying to figure out what to do. And, you know, we see this in stories in the Democrats House retreat that they had a few weeks ago. They're trying to figure out how to message their way out of this and it seems like everyone agrees that they have a messaging problem and need to figure it out but um i don't think that they have figured it out uh since every few weeks we get another story that says democrats like are trying to figure out what their message is going to be um, <laughs> if the story so that- <laughs> if the
0: story continues to be we're trying to figure out the message then obviously they haven't nailed it so
1: yeah exactly <laughs>
0: Oh man, uh, it, isn't that the way? Um, is it? Is it? You know, that's always been the knock on Democrats, and I'm not. You know, and and. You know, personally, you know, I'm not uh, a big fan of all the the corporate Democrats out there, Um, but um, I'm a little bit more of a progressive, as you as you may know. But, you know, you look at it, uh, Democrats tend to be really bad at that messaging versus Republicans, which seem who seem to be much more disciplined um, in some ways, Um, not all. Obviously, you know, Trump is a is a whole nother animal as far as that goes. But um, but traditionally Uh, They've been able to close ranks more uh, uh, effectively in a lot of ways. Um, Do you find that still the case or no?
1: I think that's probably true, but there are some instances where things are starting to crack with Republicans. I have this um, at the bottom of my newsletter every day. We do like a quote of the day. And the one today was a quote from Mitch McConnell that was like, yes, we could lose even in these conditions with bad candidates. Um, So, you know, kind of a little bit of gloating there, but I think that the biggest misstep that Republicans have made this cycle, and they haven't made a lot of them um, when it comes to kind of like that national messaging piece, but Rick Scott, who's the chairman of the big Republican Senate committee, he put out um, an agenda. I think it was in February now that, uh, you know, talked about putting more taxes on the middle, class and all these different things. And so some of it was pieces of like the typical Republican platform um, and other pieces, uh, you know, were just pretty unpopular with voters. And that's something that really frustrated like uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority leader, who hasn't really put out an agenda on what Uh, he would do. So then he has the Senate committee chair putting out this agenda, putting it up on TV with an ad buy and Democrats have been just uh, throwing it in their face. Um, I think it was the Democratic Senate campaign committee that took Uh, copies of the agenda and mailed it to Republican candidates asking them if they agree with it. Uh, They've gone up on radio ads and digital ads, and uh, there's polling that shows that, you know, it's working a little bit. So I think that's one issue, one area where Republicans have had a challenge. And then the other area where Republicans, I think, could struggle is if they nominate some really polarizing candidates with, uh, you know, a lot of baggage in key States. There's Herschel Walker in Georgia, the Trump endorsed Republican running for Senate, who's got some, you know, domestic violence allegations in his background. There was a story in the daily beast yesterday about how he's really misrepresented some of his business dealings to make them look larger than they are, uh, in the Missouri Senate race. Uh, the disgraced former governor Eric Reitens could win, um, another candidate who's got some pretty serious, uh, allegations of uh, domestic violence and sexual assault, things like that. And so even in a good year for Republicans, uh, I think there's a lot of concern within the party that they could nominate um, candidates who make it harder to win because they've just got so much baggage that will come out during a general election.
0: I do hope that you are enjoying the podcast. I just want to take a quick moment to let you know that this is a production of 180 Media. That's my full service communications and marketing agency. We do a full range of content development, graphic design, web development for WordPress or Wix or other web platforms, copywriting, video work. We'll do the big high-end corporate video work with full production, or we'll also do more simple and quick, consistent video content to help you stay in front of your audience on social media and elsewhere. We'll help you develop your short and long-term marketing plans, and I can actually even coach you to nail that next presentation. And I'll also help make that PowerPoint presentation of yours a thing of beauty. Check out what80media.com and see also some of my past work and the agency's past work on my blog, johncroll.info. And now back to the podcast. <laughs> Yeah, interestingly, I think in a, in a lot of ways, uh, Democrats are at their worst and Republicans are at their best when Democrats sort of seed the opportunity for Republicans to be the champion of the people, which is absurd, right? You know, because potentially um, Democrats always have the opportunity to be the working class uh, party. And often they've allowed the Republicans, you know, especially mean, you look back at, at twenty. 16 that's that's you know the whole the whole trump formula was to get the the sort of blue collar um middle class uh lower middle class uh, folks and and that was allowed to happen when democrats are supposed to be those who are uh, fighting for the working class but i don't know if they do a good job uh, necessarily of messaging it but also following through with it <laughs> uh, because again you know corporate interests are so powerful in both parties
1: It's going to be really interesting to watch, especially like, you know, President Joe Biden's approval rating has just stayed pretty low Um, and it's low in states where it really matters. One of those is Nevada where, uh, Catherine Cortez Masto the Democratic senator is up for re-election there was a poll out this week that showed Biden's approval rating i think at 35% and it showed her losing to uh either of the republicans who are running for senate there Adam Laxalt and Sam Brown um and so you know the national view of approval rating and all those things is important. And it's one thing, but I think like to really get a gauge on where this stuff is going, it helps to look at these battleground polls. And obviously they're a snapshot in time. They're not predictive of what's going to happen in the primaries or especially not in November, which is so far away. But, you know, those battleground states, Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, Pennsylvania, where there are just some really crazy and chaotic primaries happening, um, are gonna be really interesting to watch as the weeks go on. And we're not far from the primaries in a lot of states. Uh, May is a big month. We're gonna be up you know, every single Tuesday night until two or three in the morning watching all these votes come in.
0: Yeah, and um, you mentioned Nevada. That's one of those early states in the presidential primary season. And that was a story that uh, you wrote and have been following about this whole um, uh, sort of drama i guess it's one way to describe it for the democratic party and the order of primaries and caucuses uh, traditionally it was iowa um, which kicked everything off um as we know the last time that uh, caucus happened it was kind of disastrous um and it was pretty embarrassing for the democratic party and for iowa um in a lot of ways but um but what's happening there
1: so the presidential nominating contest could change considerably. And I have to ask you, do you remember where you were on Iowa caucus night in 2020?
0: <laughs> yes, <I'm, laughs> I do. I was actually, I remember I was in Newton. Uh, I was at uh, uh, Evans Park um, in the senior living community because that's where I was working at the time <laughs> and uh, and just sitting there and uh, Buttig- Buttigieg's Called it, you know. He's he said I won, <laughs> and then um, and it just seemed really weird. And it was even when that happened, it was like he he's really this is not for sure. Like, but he called it, um, and a lot of that just seemed really strange. It was just a strange, strange night.
1: I think that we all should have known that things were going to go off the rails. Do you remember that like viral tweet of the person who dropped a bottle of wine and it shattered in the caucus gym in Iowa? uh, I think that is like the perfect depiction of where things were headed. I remember, so I was at my my home in Medford. And we were doing like a Politico live chat that we do on election nights. And so all the reporters are kind of like chatting and it goes on to this cool, like interactive page on the website. And we were waiting for the results to come in and waiting. And we had people who were there and they were like, I don't really like know what's going on. The software is not working. And so we're just chatting. And chatting and the night is going on and then Buttigieg comes out and says like he won and then Bernie kind of says he won and then we're still chatting and waiting and it was like three o'clock in the morning when we were finally like we need to call it and there were still people on because you can see the analytics on the website like there were still people on it reading it because nobody knew what was going on i don't know if like, the, the whole system
0: went down didn't it or the system was it, it, it broke i don't know something like that
1: it's just like a total disaster i don't think the associated press ever called that race um and so i think that like even when people were getting on their flights out of iowa to go to the next state they kind of were saying bye to iowa For perhaps the last time. And you're seeing this kind of bear out. And so what the DNC, their bylaw committee voted on this week was to create an application process for states that can sign up to be early states. So Iowa and New Hampshire still can sign up and apply. um, But I, you know, I think things are still being worked out on how it's going to happen. Michigan's kind of looking to maybe jump into the early state lineup, same with New Jersey. Uh, Nevada's trying to jump the line and get even earlier. So it's to be really interesting to see, especially for you know people in Massachusetts who, uh Kind of get the benefit of the new hampshire primary being sure. in close proximity to the, to the candidates getting to go up and see them all the time uh you know massachusetts politicians who get the benefit of running for president in new hampshire where they're still kind of known entities because new hampshire and uh boston overlap big part of new hampshire sure. overlaps with boston and the media market there so it's going to be fascinating to see you know how this is going to work if this is going to bear out if we will somehow revert back to the status quo but This was something, you know, it's a big deal that it's happening, but I don't know if it's surprising. For one, the Iowa fiasco. And then the other reason is because Iowa and New Hampshire don't really match the diversity of the country. And that's something that Democrats had been talking about all last cycle. It was hard for presidential candidates to talk about it because you don't want to go into Iowa or New Hampshire and say, you know, if I'm president, we will get rid of your (laughs) first in the nation primary that you enjoy. And uh, you can build a whole political industry around. I think uh, Julian Castro is one of the only people to really be vocal about that. So it's going to be really fascinating to watch just because, you know, there's so much infrastructure and kind of traditions that are built up in Iowa and New Hampshire. You know, I was in New Hampshire all the time last cycle going to different things um, like the apple farm that a lot of candidates go to the McIntyre Shaheen dinner in Manchester. There's all of these things. So it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, if it moves, kind of what the new traditions that build up in other states might be like.
0: And and it's a massive economic impact because I right. think um, when it comes down to it, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is measurable. I mean, every media outlet and of course, just the mass of People, even just the campaigns that are so large, they come into town, they fill hotel rooms, they go to dinner, they go to lunch, <laughs> they uh, pay for ads, uh, the radio stations, the TV stations, the newspapers, if there are any left, you know, um, as far as that goes. And so it, it would be a huge, um, it would be devastating for New Hampshire to get uh, pushed back because once you are not up front and near the front of the line, then your state, especially if there aren't, um, you know, a, a lot of the, the delegates to get, you know, um, it, you know, it's kind of like Massachusetts. It's, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a thing, but we're one of how many states that are um, that vote on that same day. So, you know, we're just one of the pack, whereas New Hampshire, yeah, it's a big deal. And it will be a big deal for Iowa to lose it uh, as well.
1: Right. And I know more about New Hampshire than Iowa just because I was there more sure. often. But. Yeah, me um, too my new uh, new hampshire public radio did a great podcast series last uh cycle called stranglehold that's all about the new hampshire primary and kind of the myths around it and uh the economic kind of buildup that happens and the access that officials in new hampshire get and so i thought that was a really great um i particularly particularly like their uh deep dive on dixville notch where uh do people actually live there who vote there um it's uh it's a <laughs> interesting I mean, it's, deep dive. It's just on how Spain. It all It's just
0: fun saying dixville notch you know um so it's you know yeah definitely check out that podcast i saw that you posted on twitter uh recently so uh it'll be a good refresher for uh those uh, political junkies out there um but um but there it is uh and, and then of course in this whole process and one of the great criticisms of the dnc has been uh, just the corporate interests and and those who uh, are able to manage the DNC and, and progressives uh, have been battling this battle to get more control. Um, I don't know if they've gotten much of a foothold or maybe they have. I don't know. What is your sense on that?
1: Um, It's a good question. I'm not super well versed in how things are going like inside the DNC. But I will say one thing that I've been watching pretty closely is the DNC's relationship with the White House. NBC has been doing some good reporting on how uh, the relationship there has been pretty fraught uh, heading into these midterms, which could be catastrophic for Democrats. Um, And if they are, I mean, I'm sure that uh, tensions will remain as we head into twenty twenty four for sure. Yeah,
0: I'm sure. I'm sure it won't get much better. but um, and then Massachusetts, um, again, you know, not your your beat anymore, but uh, you have more Healy who's running uh, for governor. Um, you know, there's a Trump supported Republican uh, who's who's running. Um, any sense on on this race? and and again, and, and there's one thing that should be said for um, for listeners uh, who may be uh, avid followers of politics the candidates are the ones who know a lot more often because they're the ones running polls (laughs) as well. So there's sometimes there are public polls, obviously, and those are helpful and that sort of thing, especially in some of the bigger races, but especially early on when public polls are not being run, it's usually the candidates uh, who really have a sense. They're the ones paying these agencies to go out and run polls. So they often know a lot more.
1: Um, so in Massachusetts, I mean, a blue state where there is a very well-known Democrat running versus a Trump-endorsed Republican who not as many people know of. Um, I mean, I, maybe that's shifted and I just haven't seen it in the polling, but it seems like, you know, uh, barring, I mean, I don't know how the primary will go. It seems like Maura Healy, uh, you know, is kind of running ahead of um, Sonia Chang-Giaz, but uh so we'll have to see. But I think that this could be a situation where Massachusetts is run by a Democratic governor, which is not so common for Massachusetts, as you know, and is also, you know, pretty interesting. Um, so we'll have to see. But I think it's, you know, with Charlie Baker retiring and when he's gone, we'll have to see what kind of what happens with the mass GOP, which is sort of an uh I don't know what the right word is. Uh, just kind of a lot of infighting and drama and it's so problems. it's so funny
0: that we, they get to they're able to elect a governor and I'd I say they because you know it was Mitt Romney you know I mean he had a he had quite a name recognition and, and such uh, coming in and and then uh, Baker of course Baker lost Deval Patrick one time uh, before before winning but the actual GOP party in Massachusetts I just I've never really felt like it's a really organized thing
1: (laughs) and it's actually not that uncommon it's become something i think that's more prevalent in the trump era as kind of the more moderate or not even moderate but more kind of like traditional republicans have split with you know the more further to the right trumpy republicans something that we've really seen in massachusetts but other places like idaho uh where the governor of idaho is really conservative um on, you know, every issue, but still his lieutenant governor is moving further to the right and running against him. He went out of the state wow. for um, like a day. And you know how when governors leave the state, the act, the lieutenant governor becomes acting governor. Yeah. She signed an executive order. I think it was something like banning mask mandates and banning vaccine mandates. And he had to come back the next day, even though they didn't even have a mask mandate. He like came and undid it the next day. And that's a state where, uh, you know, it's super Republican um, everywhere. So
0: (laughs) that's tough. You can't even leave your own state with a governor trying to take it over.
1: (laughs) It's definitely like pronounced in Massachusetts just because like it's such an interesting phenomenon, a blue state with a Republican governor. But uh, it's been this thing happening in a lot of different states where, you know, Trump Loyalists have come in and kind of taken over the state parties, especially with support from kind of the grassroots and Trump's base and kind of pushed out those more traditional Republicans pre 2016 type of people. So um, definitely something that's happening in a lot of states.
0: I was just having this conversation with actually a political consultant today that talked about um, the uh, Martha Coakley versus Baker governor's race, and I don't know if you were around at that point, um, but uh, of course Baker won in the suburbs of, of Boston and, and always did very well there. And uh, Martha Coakley probably could have done better in the hill towns, you know, when you went west of four ninety five, but she needed to win big, big margins uh, in order to sort of make up that difference, but she didn't you know and in fact she lost a lot of the hill towns here and there um so that's kind of the way i look at massachusetts is you have the super blue out west in the hill towns you know certainly in you know some of the urban areas uh, for sure uh but then you have those uh, boston suburbs which are much more conservative. Um, and so they can balance them. Deval Patrick showed that you can balance that out and win. Um, but uh, many of these Republicans have, have really figured that out, that uh, they're able to win uh, kind of in the, in the Boston suburbs.
1: You're reminding me, I think it was, it must've been 2018, because that's the last time Healy was up. But I remember like looking through the different vote totals. I don't know if it was the Hilltowns, it was definitely Northampton and kind of like the towns in Western Mass. Um, She was just like topping the ticket in like all of those different towns, just like running ahead of everybody else. So I wonder if she'll be able to do that again. But I know, especially from reading Massachusetts playbook, which my colleague Lisa Kishinsky does a great job on. You know, uh, Healy's been moving, you know, closer to the center, kind of moving away from that progressive label. So uh, that'll be an interesting trend to watch. I think this year.
0: Mm, it will. We'll have to get Lisa on the podcast too, yeah. uh, and and check that out. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's that's the interesting dynamic because people look at massachusetts and if you look at the big picture and it's blue, blue blue all the time, but it's not really <laughs> it's 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 really an interesting uh dynamic and even the blue as it were, there's different shades of blue and uh, like I said I think you know in a lot of the hill towns and western mass it's very blue more progressive whereas I think in much more of the state it's much more of a, a moderate <laughs> blue uh, a, as it were you know um even in our own Berkshire county, pittsfield is much more of a conservative democrat uh, group as opposed to hill towns and you know the the um wealthier williamstown and great barrington and that sort of thing so it, it's politics is always fun because <laughs> uh, you have these crazy dynamics uh uh everywhere and so and you can take that snapshot and and put it all around the country and that's and that's what you get to follow so um so i'm i'm totally stoked for you stephanie and uh and i so what what's the first date uh, that you have in may that you have a, a star next to for uh some of these uh, uh elections
1: That would be May third, uh Tuesday, May third. And that is the Ohio election. And I think there's a couple of others. Let me check. I've just been so focused on Ohio lately, Indiana as well. And then uh the next on I think Two weeks later will be West Virginia and Nebraska. There's a really fascinating race in West Virginia between two members of Congress. And this is one of those seats where uh, during redistricting, they got drawn into the same district because Western West Virginia lost a seat in redistricting. So it's Alex Mooney versus David McKinley. And they are putting some of the nastiest TV ads wow. I've ever seen on the air. Uh, one is calling the other a political prostitute. Uh, the other one is calling the other one a rhino and a liar. Uh, just a lot of nastiness. And what's fascinating, and like this is a phenomenon that I've seen in tons of ads, I've written about it, but Donald Trump will endorse a candidate in a Republican primary and the rest of the candidates will not drop out, uh, but they will not run against Trump either. They will run as, you know, an America first candidate, as somebody who will carry out uh, building the wall, uh, doing, you know, being a trump supporter so even though they don't have his endorsement they still imply that they support him and sometimes that'll work out and the trump candidate uh won't even win so this is going to be one that's really interesting yeah it's
0: kind of like towing that line that careful line to to say you know because if i go anti-trump primaries are tough to win for republicans now uh you know and and there are a lot of analysts and folks out there who bemoan that but again these guys and women, they they see the polls, <laughs> they know what's going on. So so you don't get the endorsement from Trump, but you don't you don't just go anti-Trump because if you do, it's it may be political suicide at that point.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting. Like sometimes I think there were a couple of races in Texas where this happened last year during like the special, an off-year election cycle. But um, you know, just saying you are a Trump candidate can help you win even if he hasn't endorsed you. So it's not really a field clearer. At all, which is interesting. But in a lot of these red states, it's going to be a big test of kind of the power of his endorsement. Pennsylvania, where he just endorsed Mem and Oz uh, from the TV show Dr. Oz. I think Ohio, where it looks like he might uh get ready to endorse JD Vance, somebody who's criticized him in the past. Uh, we're gonna get, you know, a test of the power of his endorsement in just a few weeks. And it's gonna be, you know, fascinating to see because so far it hasn't really helped candidates raise an amazing amount of money when you look. At people he's endorsed a few quarters ago um and it hasn't you know pulled them ahead in the polls in every case so Will it pull people over the finish line in these primaries? We shall see.
0: But interesting, maybe a little bit of uh, discipline coming from Trump in the sense that he endorses someone who has been critical of him in the past. So um, so, <laughs> so that's interesting, too. And then when you look at when districts disappear and that happens, um, you, you kind of have one of two dynamics. One is, OK, you figure out who the sort of alpha dog is in the case, and then maybe the other one retires and, and takes it over. And that's what's happened in Massachusetts from time to time time it happened out in Western Massachusetts when John Olvers district merged with Richie Neal's district and Richie Neal was you know was the guy and John uh retired um but in your case boy that <laughs> out there uh you know uh political prostitutes and uh, and rhinos um yeah sounds sounds pretty hot out there
1: right and it makes you wonder what are things like when uh the west virginia congressional delegation gets together like are they getting dinner every so often after those ads go on the um and there's i think there's five member on member primaries the other one that i've been focused on this week i'm doing some reporting on for my newsletter is the lucy mcbath and carolyn bordeaux primary in georgia so that'll be an interesting one to watch um and a couple of Massachusetts uh lawmakers have gotten involved in that race uh ayanna presley and Elizabeth Warren endorsed Macbeth. Um, So that's the other thing that I find interesting all the time is kind of seeing like, who's going to go with who um, when it comes to house colleagues and kind of why are they doing that? I think it's interesting that Elizabeth Warren has continued to kind of make these progressive endorsements in states that are not Massachusetts, in states where uh, you know, if you're somebody who wants to keep a national political profile, maybe set the stage to run for something yeah. again in a few years, um, right? Because in that you in know, the actual, making those interesting connections
0: in the actual race, do you think it actually helps?
1: Um, you know, that's a good question. I think it can certainly help with fundraising. Um, when, that, yeah, that's
0: what I was going to say. I mean, if it brings you know, dollars in, then then there you go. Then then that if helps, you have but- like.
1: People with big, small-dollar donor bases like Warren and Presley have. I think that's a benefit. But when it comes to swaying people, I don't know if any endorsements have a huge impact. I think it's like fundraising, legitimacy, getting written about in the press. Um, It helps in all of those different cases
0: yeah yeah that's always been my experience that people really don't care that much about endorsements uh exactly you know, they, they kind of see it for what it is uh in, in a lot of ways but again if it brings in dollars uh candidates need dollars so um so that is a a, a ironclad benefit to getting an endorsement if that's the case so um wow uh, stephanie Murray, we covered a lot of ground um you know i i would love to have you as a regular on the podcast uh, going uh forward you know every couple months checking in because um things will happen very quickly during this uh, midterm but um but i i again wish you the best i'm i'm so happy for you and uh and good luck in in washington dc and uh and we'll keep we'll keep on keeping on
1: thank you so much for having me i'd love to come back it was a pleasure uh chatting with you so thank you so much
0: thank you for listening if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the John Crow Podcast on your platform of choice. Maybe it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify, whatever works for you. Also, I would like to hear from you on the people and the stories that you'd like to hear more of. Send me a note through Facebook Messenger, Instagram, LinkedIn. I'm easy to find and I'm easy to reach. I look forward to hearing from you. And if you'd like to support the podcast for less than a cup of coffee, and I'm not talking about the cost of a large latte at a fancy coffee shop. No, more like a McDonald's coffee. Go into the description of this episode and scroll down to the anchor.fm link. It's right there. Just click it and you can see your options or log on to anchor.fm backslash John hyphen Kroll backslash support. Again, thank you for listening. I'm John Kroll. Talk to you soon. (laughs) i <laughs>